This morning's scripture is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, verses 1 through 19. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it came from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell them, to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to, a servant to the tenants so that they could give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they treated, they beat and treat shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How's everybody today? A little toasty, huh? Um, I teach high school, and we deal with a lot of strange challenges in high school. Most of them come from TikTok. <laughs> have, any, have any of you heard of those dumb challenges, like the cinnamon challenge and the eraser challenge? Those are bad. So I decided to make my own challenge for TikTok today. Okay? So my challenge is to see if I can hold 50 grapes in my hand. Think I can do it? No? All at the same time. Not this way, though. Like, just in my hand. In one hand. No. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. 18, 19, 20, oops, 21, 22, 
20, 21, 22, oh, 22, <laughs> 23, 24, oh, I can't do it. Can I have another try? Will you let me have another try? Okay, let's try it again. Maybe if I spread my fingers out a little more, or do you think closer together? Huh? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty, twenty-one. 22, 23, I don't think I'm going to make it to 50. 24, 25, 25, I'm getting there, 36, 37, 38, I feel like I'm doing, uh, what is that, don't break the ice or whatever that game is, what was that, 38, 30, whoop, 38, 39, uh-oh, I don't think it's going to work, I don't think I'm going to get the rest of those on there, 40 wasn't bad, but let me try it this way. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. What do you mean? They're raisins. They're grapes, right? They're just in a different shape. They've had a second chance, just like you're giving me, right? Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. I can tell you there's 51 in here. No problem. No problem. All right. So why am I doing this? Not to waste time. Our story takes place in a vineyard. It takes place when the master of the vineyard had moved away, and he went back and said, give me my portion. And he sent the servants, and the servants were killed. And he sent some more servants, and they were killed. And finally, he sent his son. And he was killed. Now, why would Jesus tell us a story like that? That doesn't have a happy ending. Why would he tell us that story? That's not okay. But when I was thinking about it and reading a little bit further into it, it made me think that we have had a lot of second chances in our life, and you graciously gave me three, well, two second chances, right? And I appreciate that. And God gives us second chances, too. God has always been trying to get us back together with him. From the time of Adam and Eve, we've separated ourselves from him. So he sent people like Abraham. He sent people like all those church fathers that we know and tell stories about. He sent the prophets. And what did we do with all of them? Yeah, no, nah. no, you're not the Messiah, we don't care. Finally, he sent Jesus. And what did we do to him? We rejected him, too. 
We hung him on a cross and we killed him. I thought it was interesting that they took him outside of the vineyard. It's like they took Jesus outside of Jerusalem. But the verses that really caught my attention were the uh, 17 and 18. The stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone, and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. That's pretty harsh. Either way, it sounds like a lose-lose, right? If you trip on the stone, you're going to be a mess, and if it lands on you, you're going to be even worse. And then I thought about that some more, and I thought about my raisins. Raisins are delicious, and they're nutritious, and they're wonderful, and they're easy to hold in your hand. Easier than these, more portable, more usable in recipes. How many times have you tried to cook a cake or something with, or cookies with grapes? But you can make some really amazing cookies and cakes with raisins. Yes. <laughs> My husband doesn't like raisins. Um, and then I thought about that. How many cornerstones does one building need? Just one. And so if we're all trying to be cornerstones, we're never going to build one building. We're just going to make a mess. So if we allow ourselves to be broken, broken from our sin, broken from our pride, our things that are distracting us from who we really need to be focusing on, then we can be useful pieces to build up the kingdom of God. We can build up the church. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those temple leaders, they were too focused on being their own little cornerstones. They needed to be broken. They needed to be smaller. They were missing the who that was important. And so when I read that a couple more times, if we don't allow ourselves to be broken and given a second chance to become more useful, then we're just going to get smushed. And that's not what I want. I don't think it's what you want. So let's let God use us. Let's let take advantage of those second chances that we can be forgiven from our sins and be forgiven from our pride and be useful in the building up of his church in this world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you do give us second chances. And even if we're not perfect, you find a way to use us if we'll just give ourselves to you. So let us be the ones who break ourselves by falling in worship on the cornerstone so that we're not smushed by the cornerstone in the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord, thank you that you are a powerful God and you are a loving God. And even when we encounter serious passages like today, sobering passages, there is hope. Lord, please help us to see the hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Totally unrelated, but I meant to say this at the beginning. It was David White's birthday yesterday, too. No? Friday. Oh, okay. I got the notification late then. Anyway, we're almost birthday buddies, so happy birthday to you too. And Barb. Oh, okay. So I'm older than you now, I guess. It was also Barb's birthday. The only reason my birthday is a big deal this year is because I turned 50.
so we don't have to do this ever again. But um, anyway, okay, let's, let's talk about Luke 20. Um, okay, I have a question for you as usual. If I say the word authority, what's your reaction? <laughs> yeah, okay, you want to come up here and sing that? No. Anybody else? Thumbs up, thumbs down, authority? Okay, it depends. Anybody really have a hard time with authority? Okay, you're not going to admit it. Okay, fine. Okay, right. So, that's, that's true. Well, People don't like to be told what to do, right? Right. Okay, misplaced authority is bad. Yeah, okay, good. So this is the final sermon in a series that we've been going through for the last few months on Jesus' parables in Luke. We didn't do all of them. There are a couple that are super short that, we kinda, that are in other Gospels that we kind of skipped over, but this is week 13, so we've, we've done a good job. We've gone through a whole bunch of them. And I realized that this is a strange passage to preach when there are guests here. Because <laughs> you maybe know some of us outside of this context, but you don't know our context as a church. You don't know where we've been in this series. And that's, well, that's how it goes. That's what Barb feels like every week when she sees the passage that I'm going to preach on. <laughs> She's like, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, so we're going to tackle this because that's what we do here. And I, but I want to communicate something to everybody here. It's a review to those of you who have been here, and it's a little heads up to those of you who haven't. Um, we've noticed over the course of this series that it's really helpful when you're studying the parables of Jesus to notice the frame. If you frame a picture, the, what you put around the picture influences how you see the picture, right? If you put a one color mat around it, it's going to look different. The picture is going to look different than if you put a different color mat around it, or if, if your frame is simple, or if it's really ornate. And every single one of Jesus' parables are told in a context, in another story that's already happening. So these are not really just standalone, little nice moral stories that give you a this means this, and that means that, and that's the, that's the whole meaning, and it's all set. What was happening that made Jesus tell the story is important. That helps us to understand and unlock what the story that he's telling actually means. So, we're going to talk, today the frame is extra important. Um, those of you who were here last week, you know we talked about a different parable about a king and some servants. And today's parable happens sometime within the week after Jesus told that parable. Do you remember what I said he was about to happen when he told that parable? He, he told the parable about the king and the, mine, the servants and the minas and the subjects that didn't want the king. And what was about to happen right after Jesus told that? Palm Sunday. What's Palm Sunday? The triumphal entry, Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and what's going to happen at the end of the week? 
he's going to be crucified. Right. So this, we need to keep this in mind um, for last week's parable and this week's parable. Last week's parable left us with this king, and we weren't entirely sure if he was a good king or a bad king, right? It's a little unclear. The servant that doesn't do what he's supposed to do certainly does not think that the king is worthy. He doesn't think that his authority is properly placed. But today's parable shows us that that servant who knew the king was a hard man, taking out what he did not put in and reaping what he did not sow, was wrong. That servant was wrong. So, our frame story today is that. And this, what it says in verse 1 of chapter 20, Jesus is spending the week teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news. So he's not just sitting around between riding in on a donkey and then getting hung up on a cross. He's still trying to help people understand who he is, what God's kingdom is. He's still preaching the good news. He's still teaching the people. And as usual, the religious leaders are still around. They're actually more around. They're really, they've already decided amongst each other that they're going to arrest him and they're going to probably kill him. And they just start, but I think they're still looking for some even more blatant excuses to get away with doing this. And so they start needling him again and they start questioning his authority. And it's this weird kind of nya nya conversation. And they're like, where do you get your authority? And he's like, who does John get his authority from? John the Baptist. Well, we don't, we don't want to say from God because we, we don't think that's true. We don't want to say not from God because the people think he's from God. And we don't know. And Jesus is like, well, I'm not going to tell you where I get my authority then either. But he actually does. He tells them this story, and this is his answer to their question. And here's the interesting thing, and this is why the frame especially matters today. The story he is telling right now, he's actually also doing. He's acting it out while he's telling it. Okay, so what's the story? The story is there's an owner of a vineyard, and he rents it out to some tenant farmers, and, he, and when it's time for him to get some of the harvest, he's a good owner, he doesn't want to take all of the harvest, he wants his tenants to get something, but he, it's his, so he deserves to have some of the harvest, he sends a, sends a servant to collect, and they beat up the servant, that happens two more times, and then he sends his son, and they kill the son. And then the owner decides that it's time to kill the tenants. So kind of disturbing. Um, some key ideas that we need to know about for this story. The first thing is that in typical Israelite, Hebrew, Jewish understanding, the vineyard represented God's chosen people, the Hebrew people. And this is a callback to a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5, where God talks about planting a vineyard and it just grows overgrown and it's horrible and he doesn't, even though he cultivates it, it doesn't get the fruit. This is um, about the people who are working the vineyard, but it's not 
Um, it's the same imagery. Jesus is intentionally using this vineyard image to help the people that he's talking to understand, I'm talking to you, this is about our people. The other thing that's important to notice is these tenant farmers and to understand what the system is for tenant farming. So does anyone know how tenant farming works? Go ahead, Freddie. Sure, right. So they, this, these tenants, Jesus says, are renting the vineyard. So they are putting in some of their own resources. They get to basically work the vineyard themselves. They get to determine how it's run. They get some of the harvest, but they don't own it. And the owner has a right to harvest also. Do tenant farmers have authority? Yes, no, some. Some. They have some, right? Where do they get it? From the owner. Exactly. They have a certain amount of authority from the owner, but they don't have authority like the owner. Right? They do not have the same kind of authority as the owner has. This owner, like I said, appears to be a fair owner. He's only asking for some of the fruit of the vineyard, even though, actually, he owns all of it. He wants to do right by his tenants, but then what happens to the servants? The servants or the tenants? The, they get beat up, yes. They get mugged and kicked out and sent away, go back home, we're not giving you anything. Yes, we're going to talk about that. Actually, we're going to talk about that right now. The, there is a difference between the servants and the tenants. The servants do not live in the vineyard. They are not working the vineyard the same way. They have a more direct connection with the owner, and they are commissioned by the owner to take care of the owner's business. They have a relationship with the landlord. They are kind of like the first two servants in last week's parable, where they are willing servants. They must have been willing servants, because after the first one gets beat up, you got to think the other two kind of knew what was coming, right? But they still go, and they still do their job. Who do the servants represent, do you think? Prophets? Some of you said stuff, but I didn't hear it. And prophets is the right answer. <laughs> um, they most likely represent the prophets. Jesus is saying, you guys had all of these people that God sent in his name to tell you how to be God's people, how to live like kingdom people, and they all basically got beaten up. If you read the Old Testament, you can see that's more or less what happens to all of them in different ways. None of them had an easy life. So, who has more authority, the servants or the tenants? The servants. Right. Why? Because they're sent by the owner. 
they have an actual connection to the owner. They have a relationship with the owner. They're not just renting the land and working it. They, all, they know the owner. So it's interesting to note that the ones with the least authority, they have some authority, but the ones with the least authority are the harshest, the most violent, the most possessive. They have no right to be any of those things, but they are because when you don't have much authority or when you have authority that isn't actually yours, you're trying to take authority that isn't actually yours, the stakes are kind of high for you. You could lose it at any minute, and you're afraid. And we know that this is what's behind these particular tenants' uh, harshness. They don't want to lose their position in the vineyard, right? They don't want to lose any of the fruit of the vineyard. They don't want to lose the vineyard. As the story progresses, we find out they actually want the vineyard for themselves. They, they don't deserve any of that. And Jesus is telling this to religious leaders who have questioned his authority. And at the beginning of the frame and at the end of the frame, two times it says they were afraid of the people. They didn't do something because they were afraid of the people. They're afraid, and they're the harshest people in this frame. The servants don't have to be violent because they know their authority. The master doesn't have to be violent because all authority is his. The tenants are the violent ones because they have nothing else to trust in to preserve their own position. So here's a question. After the first servant got beat up, why didn't the vineyard owner send the second servant with some muscle? <laughs> it's Right, it doesn't say. That's right. God does not seem to work that way. True authority is not violent. It doesn't have to be violent. It is not threatened. And this owner, as you can tell, if you read between the lines of this story, he is hoping for real change in these tenants. Who are these tenants? Who cares? He cares. The owner hopes that they're really going to change. He does not want to force conformity. He wants transformation. So, after three trusted servants have been beaten up, he still hopes and wants the best of his tenants. And so listen to this. Really, just imagine, listen to the hope and compassion as he says to himself, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. How hopeful is that? How incredible is that? What owner cares that much about a bunch of tenants who are just renting and have already abused some of his staff? Also, this is really poignant, not only because of that, but because Jesus is quoting his father. The, father, the owner says, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. That's what the father said about Jesus when he came up out of the water, when he was baptized. That's what the father said about Jesus when he was transfigured on the mountain in front of Peter, James, and John. Jesus is quoting his father. 
just a quick note about the willingness of the servants and the sons. Because there are some people in the world, maybe some here, some of us here, who sometimes think God must be an ogre to make his son get crucified, must be horribly abusive to send people to be hurt in his name. These, the son, Jesus Christ the Son is one with the Father. Jesus is the human expression of God. And he was completely behind this plan as the Father. It wasn't the Father imposing it on him. They were unified in will. And the servants of God who dedicate their lives to God and are aware that the outside world is maybe not that friendly to the way of God and the kingdom of God are also aware there might be a price to pay. As much as we become transformed by Jesus to be like Jesus, we will also become one in will with God according to the authority that God has given us. And so it's likely that these servants in this story, I mean, it's, it's not that detailed of a story, but these servants aren't going there because the owner is forcing them to go. They're going because they have the authority of the owner, they, they believe in the owner, they have the owner's best interests at heart as well. So, with that in mind, what kind of insanely hopeful, merciful landlord would send his beloved son into a mess of known thugs just in case that would make a difference? The one with the most authority in the world. There is no threat to his authority. God is God. God is king. God is the owner of the whole vineyard. He can't be taken down. He just wants the tenants to be one with him too. The son has equal authority to the owner, so he sets out and he goes to the violent vineyard. Remember last week we said the Israelites once, at one time wanted a king who wasn't God, and then later they decided they didn't want any king at all, God or anybody else, because they wanted the kingdom for themselves. Well, here Jesus is spelling it out. He says, when the tenants saw the son, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Really, though? Is that how this works? Do tenants ever inherit the farm? Mm. Right. <laughs> Why would they think they're going to somehow inherit this farm, this vineyard, when they just killed the guy's son? Strong delusion. Yeah, that's putting it mildly. It's ridiculous. So they, in their delusion or whatever, they throw the son out of the vineyard, which Barb pointed out, and they kill him. This is also connected to, just real quick, to what Paul was talking about when he preached a few weeks ago and he was talking about outside the camp. Remember? The, the one who was sinful, the one who was unclean, gets sent outside the camp. The son gets sent outside the vineyard and killed. When the owner of, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them, Jesus asked. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. 
God forbid indeed, but God forbid what? What are they hoping God is going to forbid here? There's a lot of stuff it could be. God forbid that the tenants be killed? So let's talk about abusive leaders and abuse among the people of God for a minute. We don't have to just be talking about the Hebrews now. We can be talking about Christians too. We're aware that there are churches in this country and denominations in this country that are under scrutiny because they have not only allowed abuse to go on, but covered up for it and in some cases actually advocated it. There, that's a problem. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is describing as happening in this vineyard. The one with true authority over all things, including the whole vineyard of God's people, the one from whom Jesus' authority comes, has an insane longing, even for some tenant farmers, to relate to him well for their own well-being. God loves the abusers, it's true. But, and because that's true, this is in part why evil is allowed to continue in the world, even among God's own people and God's own leaders, because God is just hoping that somehow, one day, they're going to listen to his Holy Spirit and let him transform them and stop being like that. But, God hates what they're doing, and ultimately he owns the vineyard. And God is a good God. Even if we have to wait until the end of time, which hopefully not, those people who persist in doing violence and abuse in God's name will face God's own justice. And we should be relieved. Sometimes when Jesus talks about people dying, and it seems really harsh, but we should be grateful that we have a good, just God who knows what's right and fair and is going to take care of this stuff one way or another at some point. Last week, the, sub, the servant, the third servant, was judged by his words about the king. He, he said, I know you're a harsh man and you take what doesn't belong to you. And so the king was like, okay, fine, I'll take that, that you did not do what I said to do with, I'll take it. He was judged by his words. This week, the servants are judged by their actions against the owner because everything they did against the servants and the son is against the owner. They were violent, and they killed people. And so, they're judged by that, violence and death. Justice will be served. Evil continues in this life partly because God is secure in his own authority and will not force anybody's hand. He doesn't need to. He has authority. He doesn't need to make people do anything. But the flip side of that is that when the final God-killing rejection occurs, there is no other option but death for the rebels. When you finally, at the very end, say, nope, I still don't want it, I still want this vineyard for myself, there's, there's no other option. Because evil cannot remain in the vineyard forever. In this story, the people who have been leading the people of God have abused their position, and it's time to give it to others who will reflect the true, gracious, hopeful authority of God. What about, God forbid, that the vineyard be given to others? This is probably, probably the main thing that the people were saying God forbid about, because the vineyard represents Israel. So, God forbid that the kingdom be given to, that the vineyard be given to some other people, not Israel? 
that would be the scary thing. The Gentiles, the Romans, please, no. Let's be careful not to jump to an anti-Semitic conclusion because that has been done with passages like this before. That isn't, I don't think, what Jesus is saying, but he is taking a broader perspective of the people of God than the Jews in this story can possibly understand. And he's talking about a different way to discern leadership in the community. It's not by heritage anymore. It's by God's choice. It's by the connection with God. It's by inclusion in the vineyard by how they treat the owner's son. The tenants in the vineyard made their choice. And they made their choice. It was identical to the choice in the Garden of Eden. I'll keep the fruit, and I'll ditch the landlord. Thank you very much. But God's authority doesn't work like that. You can't ditch the landlord. Everything belongs to God. So whoever rejects God ultimately doesn't get the fruit either. We literally can't even live without him. There's a little slight possibility that the people were saying, God forbid that the owner's son be killed. That's not likely. But let's use that to get us back to the frame story, which is, like I said, actually part of the parable. Jesus is describing the history of the people of God. He's gotten to the point in the parable where the owner's son goes to the vineyard to try to get the tenants to give the owner his due. Literally, that's what is happening right now while he's telling this story. He is in the vineyard talking to the tenants, trying to get them to recognize his authority and give him what is due to him. This is, like we said, just before the Passover where Jesus the owner's son is about to be arrested, tortured, and taken outside the city and killed. Who killed him? The tenants, who are the Jewish leaders, the Romans, all the people, us. And this is why the stone the builders rejected passage is important. It seems like, okay, now we're suddenly shifting metaphors. Jesus, don't you know you're not supposed to mix metaphors? Come on. But he does. I really like what you pointed out, Barb. Uh, I had not thought of that being the need to be broken on the stone in order for God to use us. That's super powerful. There's some other things happening here too, though. Jesus is doing his Father's will, and he lives in hope like the Father does, and he lives in joy. But he also has to face the reality of his own suffering and death. And we know, because we know what he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he is not looking forward to it. He quotes this passage about the stone. It's from Psalm 119. And it's about a stone that builders say, you know what, that's not going to work. We don't want that stone. They reject it. And... As in the parable, he focuses on the fate of those who reject the stone or who reject the owner of the vineyard, who reject him. So if you fall on the stone, you're going to be cracked open, and if the stone falls on you, you're going to be smushed. But he's also doing something else, which a former pastor that I had um, 
taught, us, taught me and Paul about. When he quotes a snippet of psalm, he opens the gate of hope because the people listening to him would have known how the rest of the psalm went. So they would have known what was around it. The people, it is only after the people say, God forbid, that he quotes it. And he kind of extrapolates. The, the psalm doesn't say this thing about being crushed by the stone or breaking apart on the stone. He just adds that in to show them how serious this is. But he knows that the people know their psalms. Fewer of the people in our time know our psalms. Do you know what happens around this verse? Anybody? Without looking it up. Okay. Well, this is what the verses before and the verses after, this is how it goes in, ver, in Psalm 118. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. The marvelous thing in our eyes that God has done is that God made even the stone, even the sun, that all people, not just the Jewish leaders, but all people rejected, into the cornerstone of salvation, of the vineyard, of the building, of the temple, which we talked about at the beginning of this year, of acceptance, inclusion, and life. Because God's authority is secure and full of hope, and even after the tenants of God's good creation kill his son, he will make that very act into an avenue of forgiveness and reconciliation. There's hope even after that. It is not too late to receive, accept, respect, and even love the sun. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are a hopeful God, that you are a joyful God, that really you just want random tenants like us to receive you and to be in relationship with you and to become like you. You actually want us to have authority. You want to give us authority, good authority, that is not threatened by other people, by other powers, that is faithful and truthful and peaceable. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who has not yet received you, your son, your salvation, that you will work in them and help them to understand how much you love them and to want to be part of your vineyard, to want to be part of your good work. Lord, I pray that you will help us to trust in you, to not be afraid, and to learn to love you. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen.